Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Statistics Canada has reported that the annual inflation rate slowed to 4.3% in March. This is the lowest level since August 2021, and off the highs of February's 5.2%. Does the latest data support the Bank of Canada's decision to pause? And what does it mean for interest rates and the real economy moving forward? Institutional Portfolio Manager Alain Colette is today's guest, sharing his outlook on inflation and what he's optimistic about in the months ahead. With host Pamela Ritchie today, Alain provides a deep dive into the key points explored in the Global Asset Allocation Team's recent white paper, which includes a look at where inflation is now and where it is likely heading. This is in the context of central bank policy. Alain also explains why the team doesn't believe that rate decreases are on the horizon. We'll also hear Alain's thoughts on the labor market, opportunities in emerging markets, the role of currencies in asset allocation, and much more on today's show. This podcast was recorded on April 18th, 2023. And please note this discussion was initially presented as a webcast, and you'll hear references to a few slides shown during the broadcast. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. You've written a recent paper that you might give us just a little bit or a couple of top lines from this, but it really is tackling inflation, basically, right? That's what you're trying to get at. That's one of the elements of the paper. So this is the paper that, that should be out you know, in the next couple of days. And one of the things we examine in the context of central bank, uh, central bank policy right now is where is inflation now and where is it likely, likely heading? And you know, as you alluded to, we just don't believe well, we don't believe that, that interest rate uh, decreases are in the cards for the back half of this year like many investors do. And that is really premised on our, I think, out of consensus view on inflation that we've had for some time and that we continue to have and, the, and, and a view that, that you know, we feel quite strongly about. So, so, okay, I'm actually having trouble figuring out what consensus is, to be perfectly honest. I, I felt like we knew a few months back, but now it's quite puzzling, actually. So, so what do you think consensus is and how are you pushing back on it? Well, so I think most people have sort of examined or seen the sharp deceleration in inflation. You know, again, we hit 9% in the US, we went, we went into the eights in Canada, highest in 40 years. We know all of that stuff. And the very, very quick rolling over of inflation, I think most people expect that to continue until we get back to the 2% that we you know, knew and loved for the 25 years prior to COVID. We have a view that is, that is very different than that. In fact, our view for some time has been, for example, in the context of the US, moving from the nines to the fours, or Canada, for example, moving from the eight to the fours will be fairly easy and mechanical, right? The transitory and temporary things will fall out of the data. Supply chains will normalize. China reopening certainly helps that as well. And then what you're going to be left with, in our view, is the worst type of inflation, which is services inflation, which comes from an excessively tight labor market that pushes up wage growth, that then pushes up the service prices 
that are based on those wages, and that's what we're going to be left with. And in fact, I'm not even, I don't even think this is where we're going, to, we're going to be. We're already there. One of the things uh, the researchers that we work with in Boston do, and, and again, this is the gentleman who replaced me on the asset allocation research team uh, when I joined uh, the Canadian group up here in Toronto, one of the things he does is examine the factors that are lifting inflation or that are, or that are contributing to inflation in terms of the percentage points. And again, what you saw through the pandemic was supply shortages led to all of us buying all the Pelotons and air fryers we could find, and that pushed up the goods component. And then as supply chains normalized, that transitory component abated and is now basically inflating at pre-COVID levels. And what you're left with are sort of the stickier, more stubborn parts of inflation. Uh, and that's things like shelter. Those are things like the services side. Those are things like uh, food away from home or eating out at restaurants. Those are the things that are linked to the strength of the labor market primarily. Okay, so so let's actually go into that a little bit. The the labor market itself. I mean, so you expect inflation to be high, and I guess you're you're breaking it down for us there. But as a broad statement, is that true? You expect inflation to sort of persist. The problem with the inflation that we have right now, the services inflation, is it is linked to the wages that are being paid in the service part of the economy. And again, 80% of most developed economies work in the service sector, right? We don't really produce goods anymore. And the labor market is excessively tight, right? And when, in, when a labor market is too tight, you have to bid up the wage for the people that you're trying to hire, which ends up in the service prices of the things, of the line items that are in CPI. And so, you know, the Fed's position right now, raise rates by a tremendous amount last year and hold at high levels, similar to the Bank of Canada, is an explicit attempt to bring inflation lower. But behind that, what they're trying to do is make the labor market less tight, which is, again, the geeky way of saying push, push the unemployment rate higher or loosen up the labor market in some way such that wage growth, so that people stop asking for wage increases and you get this sort of um, re-equilibration of supply and demand where prices are at a more moderate level. And so that is the explicit attempt of what we're seeing right now by monetary policy authorities to raise rates to the point where, you know, the, the revolving credit or debt, sorry, the revolving debt that you're servicing as a household becomes more expensive, which leads to a pullback in discretionary consumer spending. Again, we've talked about this. So you swap out of the steakhouse and into ordering pizza. That steakhouse needs to order, needs to, sorry, hire fewer people. That's a loosening in the labor market from that change in consumer spending patterns, which eventually brings down the wages and brings down the inflation in that, in that part of the inflation basket. So this is an explicit attempt. It's another reason why we don't believe central banks are in a rush to cut rates in the back half of this year. Again, like market, market expectations seem to be pricing in. So what does this do ultimately for either the 60-40 or we just, or we just zero right in on... There's lots of discussion about bonds, being, this being a great time for bonds. Maybe it's the end of rate rises, says maybe consensus or certainly many voices within the markets. So, so is it a good time, based on what you've just said, to, to make sure that you're getting into the bond market in a more sort of methodical way? Right. And so, again, this is a, an area, this is the first question in this upcoming paper that we answer. And in fact, the first question in our previous paper was, is the 60-40 dead? So we really are trying to tackle this question head on. 
you know, there's still, we, we still believe it's probably too soon to pronounce the 60-40 dead. 2022 was an exceptionally challenging year to multi-asset class investors, right? When both parts of the multi go down in absolute terms, it's a pretty difficult time to be a multi-asset class investor. But I think we should talk about bonds and then we should talk about why 2022 happened. And again, it will link back unsurprisingly to inflation, probably like every answer I provide in the next 20 minutes. But so, you know, in terms of bonds, uh, in terms of the fixed income side of the portfolio, right, you know, the, the, the Canadian 10-year is yielding 3%, over 3% right now. So that is very attractive from a historical perspective. But we prefer to allocate on the fixed income side of our portfolio to the shorter term securities like cash that are yielding you know, upwards of 4%. Right? So that's where we've chosen to take some of that allocation. But also, uh, we should talk about the, the goal behind having bonds in that multi-asset class portfolio. So ideally, in a multi-asset class portfolio, stocks provide you with that lift in periods of growth, and bonds provide you with that income in periods of stress. As we know, that came under pressure. That inverse correlation came under pressure in 2022, um, and we believe that's because of inflation volatility, Infl elevated inflation and inflation volatility. So it's not to say that the 60-40 is dead or that a return to a more normal correlation environment won't happen at some point in time, but we do believe on the fixed income side of our portfolios, it's better for us to sit really in that front end of the curve, uh, given the yield curve inversion, and two, you know, we have overweights to fixed income asset classes like uh, TIPS, right, which explicitly protect against inflation, and then the credit and spread sectors where we have, you know, fantastic uh, PMs and, and a really deep research bench where we can enhance the income side of that portfolio. But to me, really, this is a, really a discussion about the stance of monetary policy now and the likely position of monetary policy perhaps in the second half of this year or even next year. So, okay, so, but the protection piece of bonds, just go back to that for us a little bit. Sure. So, you know, again, the way that multi-asset class portfolios are kind of designed, sort of a founding principle, is that in periods of growth, you know, stocks will provide that, that upside, but bonds do provide protection in, in periods of stress. And that has historically been, you know, an exceptionally strong relationship, really the foundation, founding principle for 60-40s or 50-50s or 80-20s, but that inflation volatility really um, eroded that, that inverse correlation as we saw last year. Right? So again, last year, we, from a relative perspective, we, fare, we fared okay because of our overweights to commodities, uh, which we should talk about as well, and, and our overweights to, to cash and short-term securities. But what we, what we believe we need to see is a more convincing signal that that inverse correlation between stocks and bonds is coming back on a permanent basis. And, and again, one thing I would, I would add, and I, I don't want to miss this, is we, do, we, we don't believe that the Fed or the Bank of Canada is going to be in a rush to cut interest rates in the back half of this year. Again, this is, this is something that seems to be part of the consensus now. And, and honestly, I have a very hard time, having worked there for nearly 10 years, as did David Tulk and David Wolf, we have a really hard time understanding why investors believe rates will be, um, will be cut in the back half of this year. So if I can just expand on that a little bit, if inflation is exceptionally elevated, in, in my view, you know, central banks are not gonna do anything until they see a convincing signal. This might be three, four, six months of successive prints on 
underlying core inflation showing that inflation is moving back towards their targets. Now they're not going to wait, they don't have to wait till they get to the target, but they need ample evidence that they are, uh, they are sort of heading along the right course before they change, certainly before they change their policy stance and even before they change their language. Right? So if we think about, about what Chair Powell has said, right, he has said things like, the risk of doing too little far outweighs the risk of doing too much. To me, that's exceptionally clear that indecision, meaning keeping rates at an elevated level, is, easy, is easier than decision. Right? So they're only going to make that decision, and I don't often pronounce de decision as decision, but decision is, is only going to happen when there's convincing evidence that inflation is moving back down towards target. And to be quite frank, I, look at all the, I still look at all the 356 lines of details every month. There is very little evidence to me to suggest that core underlying inflation, specifically services linked to the labor market, is even on its course back to normal. Uh, maybe we have one or two months, but we're, we're far from the uh, rate cut uh, point. So, so I don't want to put words in your mouth, but this sort of low-hanging fruit, if you will, those are my words, not yours, of the, of the transitory inflation that, that as you, you know, we've seen, is coming down on sort of a monthly basis. When does that end? So it's ended. I mean, so the truth with transitory, again, when we spoke a year or 18 months ago or even two years ago, I would have said inflation is a function of transitory things, right? Economy reopening, supply chain disruptions, because no one can buy cars or couches. All goods prices, which account for 25% of the underlying inflation pie, they were affected by transitory factors. They're now all inflating at pre-COVID levels. In fact, there's a, there's a chance they're actually re-accelerating, but that's, we'll, we'll save that conversation for another day until we have more evidence. But goods prices are inflating now at pre-COVID levels. And what, what you're left with is a very strong sort of stubbornly elevated, fueled by the tight labor market service picture, where the only way you really get meaningful, a meaningful slowing in service inflation is with a less tight labor market. I mean, now I should say there is a chance I'm wrong, right? You know, so maybe this is the wrong thing to highlight on a webcast with thousands of people, but there's a chance that I'm wrong and we see some sort of immaculate decline in inflation. And I chose that word carefully. You know, if we, if we see an immaculate decline in inflation that goes outside of the fundamental drivers of inflation, I mean, it would certainly be a head scratcher, but it's not impossible. It's not impossible that that would happen. I just think it's very unlikely when I look at the fundamental drivers of service price inflation. Let's dig into some real, and I think it's your, you know, like put, put sort of the terms, the geeky eco economic terms into perspective for us. Policy rate cuts would cut or policy cuts would policy for rate cuts would happen what does the taylor rule have to do with all of this sure so you know the taylor rule without without going too deep here the taylor rule is a simple fairly simple mechanical rule now central bankers don't really use it but they use it as a guide but it basically says your policy rate today is a function of where inflation is versus where, where inflation is today versus where you want it and where the unemployment rate is today versus where you want it, right? And so it basically says your policy, your, your central bank rate today is a function of the gaps in inflation and the labor market, right? And so from, from a stylistic perspective, it's, a, it's an excellent representation of 
the two main factors that central bankers should be considering. Now, models are overly simple, but what the Taylor rules suggest today is that rates should be much, much higher than they are, right? So given where inflation is extremely elevated today and the labor market way too tight, you know, if you put, if you put those indicators into a mechanical Taylor rule on your Bloomberg terminal by typing T-A-Y-L, it will give you a... Did you used to work for Bloomberg or something? How do you know? Yeah, four years there. Uh, so it will give you a policy rate around 9%. 9%. If you, I mean, that's twice where we are, right. And if you, that's very, very high. If you put in, even if you put in inflation at target, at 2%, the strength of the labor market would suggest a policy rate slightly higher than where we are now, even with, even with inflation on target. So you can play around with these, these assumptions, but the bottom line, and this is again something we, we tackle in this forthcoming paper, is rates are far too low for where inflation is and how tight the labor market is. And even if inflation immaculately declines, let's say in three months to 2%, which I don't think will happen, you know, rates are still too low given, given those two things. So again, we don't, you know, no central banker is just blindly following any rule. But it is a nice um, sort of illustrative tool to use just to show how much further rates have potentially to go and why we don't believe rates are going to be cut anytime soon. Follow-up question to this. Um, where do you think a law on the unemployment rate should be prior to any interest rates coming down? Yeah, so the way I think about that question is what is the natural rate of unemployment? I'll give you a very honest answer to start. I don't know. The Fed doesn't know. And nobody knows. Right? So that's the most honest answer. A more informative answer is higher than where we are now. Right? So the natural rate of unemployment, again, this is a, an unobservable concept that, that central bankers use to think about where should the unemployment rate be when supply and demand in the e economy are equilibrated. We don't really observe that. I mean, we have lots of estimates, but we know, for example, that the, un the current unemployment rate right now is far too low. So it's not impossible in the U.S., we need to be 50, 75, maybe a full percentage point higher than where we are now. The CBO in the US, the Congressional Budget Office, does produce these estimates as well. If someone really wants to um, sort of nerd out on their exact estimate of the, of the natural rate of unemployment rate. But the, the thing that we know for certain is, given the tightness in the labor market, given how strong wages are growing, and how comfortable firms are passing those wage increases into service prices, we know that the labor market is too tight. So I wouldn't, get, I wouldn't get too hung up on the exact estimate of the neutral rate or the natural rate of unemployment. But I would say, what I would say is, we know that it's far too, we know that the unemployment rate is far too low, inflation is far too high, and rates need to either move higher or remain at an elevated level for some time to sort of bring both of those back into um, more normal ranges. How do you invest this? Well, so right now, I mean, given, Given what we saw in 2022, again, one of the largest cumulative increases in policy rates in a calendar year, given the sort of erosion of that stock bond correlation, we are defensively positioned, right? So right now, for example, in our global balance fund, 60-40 fund, if you, if, you know, X commodities, which are really, that, that overweight is really as an inflation hedge, we are underweight equities. So we're defensively positioned and we're doing that in three different ways. The first is we're underweight equities. Right, we have underweights to uh, Canadian and U.S. equities. Again, the, Can the underweight to Canadian equities is really centered or focused in our view around 
the sustainability of households being able to meet their debt obligations, something we've written about at length. The underweight to US equities is slightly smaller, but really, given the cumulative increase in rates, you know, it's very, very unlikely the US avoids an outright recession. It may be less severe. Well, it's likely to be less severe than, than Canada because the US is just a less interest rate sensitive economy. Uh, but we are underweight equities. That's the first point. The second point to make is we have an overweight to cash, right, to short term, which we talked about. And the third, and this is quite important, is we have a sizable underweight to the Canadian dollar, right? So this is something we've discussed in the past. The way we think about the Canadian dollar, the way we use the Canadian dollar, really is as a shock absorber, right? So, the way, so to explain that a little bit, the Canadian dollar is a cyclical currency, meaning in periods of market stress, right? So think the last four or five months of last year, equities and credit come off, so too does the Canadian dollar. Canadian dollar depreciates. By us being underweight the Canadian dollar, our portfolios get hurt less, right? So we can see how we are building in some defensiveness given that correlation between stocks and bonds. Uh, on, the, on this chart, on chart one, you'll see, you know, the cumulative change in uh, in U.S. stocks and the ag in, for bonds, and you'll see how we're playing that with um, with the with the with the uh, with the dollar, with the Canadian dollar. Again, doing this with other currencies as well. I mean, does this come into the to the EM discussion ultimately? Well, so it's primarily our our underway to the Canadian dollar is primarily against the U.S. dollar, and this just shows the. The benefit of that of that relationship when stocks and bonds are both fairly correlated, we, we do get that that protection, that that benefit from protection from from uh, USD CAD. But and while it's primarily against the US dollar, there are some other currencies there. But but we can certainly talk about uh, emerging markets because that is actually a bright spot and something that we're uh, we're fairly optimistic on as well. Okay, so interesting because it's it's a it's a big discussion right now. We've seen lots of US dollar strength, and so there are. Many discussions about about pivots to to find other regions of the world, other currencies, essentially to be exposed to. To what extent do you take that up? Sure. So you know, when I think about what we're optimistic on, well, I was certainly optimistic on the weather in Toronto this past weekend. But it's 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 sort of the tables have turned this morning, and we're back to uh, we're back we're back to fairly fairly cold temperatures. But jokes aside, I think one of the places that we like to highlight uh, where we do have some optimism is in emerging markets, right? emerging market equities and emerging market debt. And that's for a few reasons. The first is, from a cyclical perspective, and this is something we discussed, you know, emerging market world was the first into the pandemic. It is the first out. China reopening seems to be proceeding quite well. And so that's quite a a positive, um, supported by policy, that's quite a positive cyclical impulse, we think, for that, that part of the world. The second one, and I think this is really interesting, there is some evidence to suggest that you know, the global business cycle is becoming less synchronized across countries. And in a less synchronous world, right, where an emerging market can do something that's not necessarily reflected in the West, we want to own emerging markets as a diversifier. The third point to make on emerging markets relates to valuations. Again, valuations are an important part of our our framework, and valuations are quite attractive in emerging markets. And And you can see how emerging market uh, PE ratios are quite attractive. So this is one of the valuation metrics we use. And then the fourth one, and I honestly think this is one of the most interesting ones, is the secular perspective. So we manage our portfolios for the medium to long-term investor. Uh, And when I was in Boston, I actually sat next to 
on the asset allocation research team, I sat next to the secular analyst on the team. Right? So her only job was to think about the investable universe at the 20 to 50 year horizon. And really, nowhere are prospects more promising than emerging markets. And that is really because they have better demographics, right? So they're the emerging markets are generally younger than the West. And two, they have the potential for really significant productivity growth or even productivity, productivity leapfrogging, right? So going from, you know, no, no phones, jumping landlines straight to cell phones. You can think of the same thing in terms of fintech and banking, right? So there are, the intersection of the right demographics and strong productivity growth means a lot of potential growth, which will then feed into the companies that are based there. And for that reason, we, you know, we, we've had an overweight and we will maintain an overweight to emerging markets. So I might just ask you to dig down a bit further for us, you know, the role of currency sort of broadly, because we've talked about it, but now that you're talking a bit more about around the world and exposure, uh, both to the fixed income side as well, sure. as, as well as what's the role of currencies ultimately in, in, in your asset allocation? Well, so the, yeah, so the way I think about the role of currencies in, in our non-currency neutral funds that we manage for Canadian investors is really it's, a, it's an asset class that we need to lean in or out of to improve the risk-adjusted return of that fund, right? And so that's not just jargon. What I mean by that is, again, in the, in the case of the global balance portfolio, where most of that Canadian dollar underweight is against the US, right? So sizable US dollar overweight, the Canadian dollar is, is a cyclical currency. And, and by us being underweight, the Canadian dollar, we really build in some risk management and really a shock absorber in the event of risk-off events. Now, the other part of the question, which we didn't get to, and I hope we still have time, is what are the drivers of that, of that bilateral exchange rate, Canadian dollar versus US dollar? And this is a, you know, this is a, a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a sort of a spicy answer. It used to be that the three main factors driving the Canadian dollar were interest rate differentials, right? So if the US terminal, if the, if the terminal rate for the Fed is above, above the BOC, that interest rate differential would lead to an appreciation of the US dollar vis-a-vis -vis the Canadian dollar, right? So that suggests a depreciation of the Canadian dollar. Sentiment was another one. Again, we saw that at work last year. The third one, and I think one that we've, we've tried to, we try to dig into and talk about is the role of commodities, right? So it used to be China reopens, OPEC reduces output, oil prices move higher, Canadian dollar appreciates. That relationship in our view has come under pressure and really has eroded over time, right? So it used to be commodity prices move higher, Canadian dollar appreciates. But the, the truth is now, and this is the 15th question in our Q1 thought leadership paper, commodities provide less of a tailwind to Canada than they used to say 15 or 20 years ago. And here, I mean, I'm not being political, I'm being statistical. You know, there's a wide variety of reasons why that might be the case, but it used to be high oil prices sort of lift, lifted all the boats in Canada that relationship uh, is not as strong as it used to, and it, and it even shows up in the Canada-US uh, exchange rate as well. Hence, hence the EM and, and the other currencies side of thing. It's been fascinating to hear you dig underneath some of the either statistics or you know, statements that are made, but don't necessarily know all of the thinking behind them. Elon Collat, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you soon. I'm Pamela Ritchie. 
Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.